Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. You know, uh, I don't know about you, but I have several names, uh, James, Evan, Shamaria. I have a grandson who is sort of named after me. He's Evan James Shamaria, uh, Ward, sorry, Evan James Ward. <laughs> a hard time convincing him when he was little that, that uh, his middle name was James. Um, this last week, uh, my friend um, Sam Hansen, who's two years old, uh, dressed up as a, a railroad locomotive and named James. And uh, so on uh, Wednesday night, I asked him about that, and I said, you know, my name's James, too. He said, no, it's not. <laughs> 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 and uh, he, then he proceeds to call me, and they used to call me uh, Uncle, Uncle Jim. I'm sort of a great uncle, I guess, what I officially am. Well, I am a great uncle, his great uncle. And uh, then yesterday at the men's breakfast, which he came to, he was calling me Pastor Jim. So I've got several names right there with one person, okay, in my family. We all have different names depending on the context we're in. God has different names in the Bible. And of course, when it comes to God and our Lord Jesus Christ, that's a pretty serious uh, matter that, uh, that we have, you know, we can pronounce their names. You know, my, when my father is buried at the Jewish cemetery just over here in Shoreline, even there, the headstones, when you, when you put God, it's G-D. Because uh, t- technically you don't pronounce the name of God. That's one of the reasons why we're not exactly sure how Yahweh, we say Jehovah, was pronounced. Because they quit saying it. They quit pronouncing it. Uh, and all we have are the, the, the tetragrammaton, the four letters, Y-H-W-H, without any vowels. Yahweh is the best that we, we, we come up with. But that was a name given to Moses for God's personal name. A very personal revelation, a very significant revelation that he told Moses, this is my name. So for the next three weeks, today and the next couple of weeks, we're just going to do a short series on some names of God from the Bible. And we may pick this up later on in the year maybe because there's, there's several actually. But we're going to begin that today and speak of one of God's names um, that was given to him. And it's the only time a name was given to him by a human. The other times... Um, it is God's revelation or a place that is called by the name of God, but this is a name given to God by a human being. So let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16. If you open your Bible there, please. And uh, let's have a word of prayer together. Heavenly Father, we are about to open your holy word. It is your holy word because it's the words that uh, you have graciously given to us to know you better to know the way of truth, to know the way of salvation, and to live uh, by these words. And so we just count it a privilege, Lord, um, to gather in freedom once again and be able to freely uh, speak of your name and speak of your words without fear of of, uh, uh, any hindrance or persecution like many brothers and sisters around the world are facing. Uh, And so we just thank you now and, and ask your presence with us during these few moments in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis chapter 16 in the Old Testament, a story of, it's the life of Abraham, Abraham and Sarah. And what's significant, of course, about this is chapter 15 of of Genesis, where God uh, makes a covenant with Abram. 
And uh, with Abram, he promises, when it all comes down to it, that a Abram's a very old man. His, his wife is a very old lady this time. But God promises them that they will be the father and mother of nations. They will also be the father and mother, eventually, of the Savior who will come from a nation among those nations. Um, they are given these fantastic promises that their, their nations, their peoples, will live in a land they gave him a promise that the whole world will be blessed through them. Think of that. Think of that promise. The whole world will be blessed by you, Abram and Sarah. The only thing is, in order for those promises to be fulfilled, you've got to start with one child, right? You've got to start with one. And up till now, that one is not there. There is no one. And after about 10 years have gone by and there still is no one child, we've, we read in chapter 16, verse 1, now Sarai, you'll notice this, it hasn't been changed yet to Sarah. There's an A-I diphthong sound there. Now Sarai, Abram, his name hasn't been changed to Abraham yet, Abram's wife had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Yesterday at men's breakfast, uh, Jerry Johnson was sharing how at a point in his life as a younger man that he read through the entire Bible. And one of the first things that kind of hit him was, wow, there's a lot of strange stories in the Old Testament. you know." And uh, this is one that maybe you wouldn't have expected to hear up till now, that um, these, these patriarch and matriarch these very important people whom we hold in such high regard. In fact, Abraham is probably the most revered name in history, literally, in the sense that the Christian faith holds him in, of course, high esteem. Obviously, the Jewish faith holds him in high esteem, and so does, does uh, Islam, because they also consider Abraham the father of, of their peoples as well. So this is probably one of the most uh, revered names in world history, and even so today. And yet they concoct this plan that, you know, no, no comment is made on it. There's no comment by the author of Genesis, Moses. Moses makes no comment and says, by the way, this was not a good idea. You know, um, there's no comment. There's no moral um, commentary on it. But I think from what we know of God's God's desire from Genesis 2.15, and, and, and he created them, as, as Paul quotes as well, male and female, and the two shall become one. And this idea that uh, this union of, of uh, husband and wife, man and woman in marriage, that this is God's desire, this is God's best. And Abram has a wife. It is Sarah. And uh, just my own personal opinion is, if, if you were to ask me, is this God's uh, best will? I would say no, because uh, they are to depend on God. God will take care of this promise. This is God's problem, not theirs. He has promised them, them, Abraham and Sarah, Abram and Sarai, he has promised them a child. Uh, is this also in God's sovereign will? I guess, of course we have to say, God is sovereign over everything, and that's the mystery we have to sort of leave uh, with, the, with the, uh, the omnipotence and omniscience of God. But here's the plan. And actually, it is true that we know from uh, this culture of the Mesopotamian, this early culture of this part of the world and the old world, uh, culturally, this was perfectly acceptable and perfectly common. That doesn't make it right. 
but it wouldn't have been astounding or surprising to the people in this context because uh, even in this context, we know that in some of the, the, the various codes of Hammurabi and different things that come from this era, after 10 years, if you bore no children, that was grounds for divorce, even in, in sometimes in the Jewish world even. And so um, this, this is not culturally astounding. But it is kind of odd, isn't it, that Hagar says to Abram, Abram, God has kept me from having children. And I want you to take my maidservant, this young girl, this maidservant, and I want you to have a child by her. And it's interesting, and the NIV caught it pretty good here. It says, perhaps I can build a family through here. That's actually the word that's used. It's the word build, bana. Uh, I can build a family through her. So Sarah comes up with a plan. She presents it to Abram, and Abram agrees with it. Abram agreed with Sarah. And he agreed with what she said. And it goes on to say, So, after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, so we have a ten-year period since this previous in chapter 15, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian, remember it's an Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, gave her to her husband to be his wife, he slept with her, and she conceived. So, you can imagine the... Um, relationship complications here <laughs> that are, are going to take place. Uh, this young woman, and it, it says to be, her, to be his wife, uh, gets pregnant right away. She conceives, and she is going to have a child. And of course, um, this complicates things a bit because as soon as this happened, it says when she knew she was pregnant, that is when, when Sarah knew that Hagar was pregnant. This was her servant. This was someone that was entrusted to her, someone she probably cared about, somebody who had been part of her life for many years. She was a young Egyptian woman. And when she sees this, she began to despise this mistress, this, this servant. She, she hates her. Every time she looks at her, she's, she's angry. She's wrathful. She's jealous, certainly. Here is this young woman, probably younger than her, and here she is beginning to show she is pregnant, and she is going to have a baby. And here, Sarah, who's been promised by God that she would be the mother of nations, has no children. And she is getting older and older, and she is well beyond any chance of having children from a human perspective. And she sees this situation, and she is angry. She despises. You can put that up. This is the passage we're looking at. No, the, the first slide. I'm sorry. Is that my first slide? Sorry, Cliff. I made a mistake. Okay, you can put that one down then. Thanks for your help. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, oh, no, that's it. Put it back up there. That's right. You got it. Okay, thank you. <laughs> now, you know what? I haven't been in the pulpit for five weeks. You know that? It's been five weeks since I've been up here. So I'm sort of like, who's the pitcher for the Mariners that got comeback player of the year? Uh, young? Is this young? Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm a little rusty here. So we'll, we'll get it down here. So she hates her. She's angry. She's jealous. And she says to Abram, verse 5, and Sarah said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. 
Well, you can all read your own thoughts into that, <laughs> that commentary. Um, you know, this is a very difficult situation. And Sarah says, Abraham, this is your fault. Um, this is your fault. You got her pregnant, and now she despises me, and the Lord can judge between you and me. And uh, Abram, you know, I can kind of read between the lines, I guess. Like we all can take our own take on this, but I, I'm not sure what he thought about this whole scenario. But he, his response to her is, um, well, your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. That's his response. Um, I, don't, I don't know if he knows what really to do in this situation. Um, I think there, he's probably excited about going to have a child. Um, given the cultural situation, she is like a wife to him now. Um, and he was probably looking forward to this, and all of a sudden it takes a turn this way. And she says, you, you, you know, you're, you're the one responsible. Look at the trouble she's caused. And he says, you do what's best. It is kind of interesting, though, what he does say to her. He does say in verse 6, do with her whatever you think best. And you could read into that, well, you make the decision, do what you want. But in the Hebrew, it kind of comes out, be good. You know, be good. Do, do, do what's best. Yes, we got a complicated situation. we got a difficult situation, but do what's best. And I think that's kind of the, the Hebrew nuance of this passage. And so how Sarah interprets this, the right to uh, do what she wants, and you'll notice it says that Sarah mistreated her. Sarah is mean to her. Now, lest we, lest we try to kind of sugarcoat this and say, well, you know, Hagar deserved this um, and so forth, uh, even the great Jewish theologian and philosopher Maimonides, one of the most famous Jewish theologians and philosophers in history, Maimonides in the Middle Ages, says this, the matriarch, that is Sarah, sinned by such mistreatment and Abraham too by permitting it. I read a couple of Jewish commentaries and they all agree. In fact, one even suggested because this Egyptian was mistreated by this Jewish woman, was part of the reason why the Jews had to go down into Egypt and the slavery. I don't agree with that, but you can see, unless we tend to kind of cover this up and say, well, it wasn't really bad. Yes, it was bad. Uh, Sarah is, is not doing the right thing. She's mistreating this young woman. This young woman who didn't ask for this, she didn't ask for any of this. She, it wasn't her idea. She's doing, she's a servant. She does what she's told. She may not have really looked forward to you know, to spend the night with Abraham at his age and so on. But she did what was told. She was obedient. And here she gets herself not only in this situation, but now she is being mistreated, being abused, if you will, by her boss, by her owner, by the, the matriarch, to the point that she flees. Now, she's not kicked out. She's not told to leave. But she flees. She leaves. The, the situation is so bad and, and so hard and so difficult that she leaves. And she is heading home. The, the, the description here of where she is going, when, when, when we find her where she is, it appears that she's, she's looking toward going back south, back down to Egypt. So this is the context. When we come in verse 7, as she fled, the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to shore. Now, this, you know what's really significant here? 
This is actually the first mention in the Hebrew Bible, the word angel. This is the first time that you will find the word used, angel, in the Bible. Secondly, this is also the first time, obviously, because it's the first time the word angel is used, that we find the angel of the Lord. Hamalek, uh, Adonai, the angel of the Lord. And we'll find this some 48 times throughout the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord. And from a, the, the historic Christian interpretation of this is that this angel is God himself, most likely the second person in Trinity, Jesus Christ. That is the historic Christian interpretation that you'll find. Because you will find that there are times where this angel appears and all of a sudden it's God talking. You will find like with Jacob where he wrestles with this angel and afterwards says, ah, I've seen the Lord and I'm still alive. You will find in Exodus where we, where we find that this angel has the right to forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. So I think we're on pretty good ground to suggest that this angel of the Lord is more than just a messenger sent by God like Gabriel. This is God himself. I, I agree with the, the thought that this is the second person trinity that this is the Lord Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. Regardless of that, I think there's pretty good evidence that it is God himself. And you notice that the angel finds Hagar. The angel, th this woman is a, is a nobody. This woman is an Egyptian servant. Up till now, she has not been a key player in any story. She is an insignificant servant among many servants that the patriarchs have. She is, she is mistreated, she's despised, she is on her own, she is pregnant, she is homeless, she is, she is, she is a, a lowly outcast, if you will, at this time, because she has also fled illegally from her mistress. And this could be punishable by death even itself, if she goes back. But the angel, God himself, goes and finds her. You know, this theme throughout the Bible, the Lord says, I came to seek those who were lost. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, was it say that God went and God went and found they weren't looking for God, they were hiding, and God went and found them. And we see here that God goes and he finds Hagar. Well, he didn't, of course, he knew where she was, but it, the Hebrew makes the point that God takes initiative. He finds her. And she was near a spring that is beside the road to shore. She is she is heading home. And God, I think, the angel, says to her, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Now, you know, there's just a lot missing from this story. <laughs> I, think, I think she sees this angel. I, I think it's not just a, a voice. I think she sees this angel. She may not recognize it as an angel. There's something different, but we see this throughout the Old Testament. Even Jesus Christ on the road to Emmaus, they didn't recognize until their eyes were opened. And she sees this angel. She hears the voice, and the voice knows her name and says, Hagar, where, where have you come from? Where are you going? And Hagar says, I am running away from my mistress, she answered. I'm leaving. I'm running away. She's pregnant. She's homeless. She's on her own. She has nothing. She didn't leave with any money or anything else, but she, it was so desperate. It was so difficult. It was so harsh. Her situation, her life was so hard that she felt her only option was to leave and to flee and go back home to Egypt. 
and to get away from this, this matriarch, Sarah, who was making her life so difficult. Maybe you've had people in your lives who have made your life difficult. That maybe it seems like their only joy in life is to make your life difficult. This is, this is Hagar. This is Hagar. This is real, friends. This is a real human story. This is not just a one-dimension account from the Bible. These are real people with real feelings, with real issues and real challenges. And Abraham and, Hag- and Sarah have their challenges. And Hagar's got her challenges. And the angel of the Lord, in verse 9, said to her and told her, Hagar, go home. Go back. I want you to go back to your mistress and submit to her. You go back. And you notice he says, he doesn't say, you go back and I'm going to make sure it's going to be good. I'm going to change her mind. I'm going to change your life. I'm going to make, it's all going to be happy. No, he says, Hagar, you go back. You go back to that miserable situation. You go back to that woman who is making your life so difficult. You go back to that man who is, who, who is not standing up for you and, and maybe doing what he should do. You go back. You go back. You go back. You go back to her. And you submit. But the angel, God says also, I will increase your descendants. They will be too numerous to count. He gives Hagar, this nobody from Egypt, this lady who has just got herself into this by, because she's ordered to do it. And God announces to her, I am going to increase your descendants. This baby you're carrying is going to be great. He is going to have generations and descendants after him that are going to be important. And the angel of the Lord also said to her, the angel of the Lord, Hamalek Adonai, the angel of the Lord said to her, you are now with child. You will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Now, you know, because of the, 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 the situation in the Old Testament between the, the children of Abraham, Jacob, Isaac and Jacob, the children of Jacob, the sons of Israel and their neighbors, we sometimes, we draw some, you know, conclusions about the people. But I want to tell you, in the Old Testament, Ishmael and his descendants are not held in a negative view. Um, Ishmael is the father of the Arab nations. But, but, they, but they, in fact, later on, we'll find one of David's relatives marries uh, an Ishmaelite. He has an in-law who's an Ishmaelite. David has people in his government. He has a, 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 one of the rulers in his government who's an Ishmaelite. They, they, this is an interesting prophecy about these people, but it is not a, it is not a, a, a negative, like these are going to be bad people. He just tells them what, what they're going to be like. This is, what this is what their descendants are going to be. But you are going to have nations from you. And because of that, in verse 13, and I want you to notice, she gave this name to the Lord. She's the only one in the Bible who says, God, I'm going to name you. How dare her? <laughs> She's just a simple slave from Egypt. But there's something about this situation that all of a sudden I think her eyes were opened. Somehow in this whole story, something happened and all of a sudden she realized she was talking to God. I mean, that's why I think it has to be God, this angel, because she realized she's talking to God. 
and she survives. She lives. She's heard about this God. She, she knows this is the God of Abraham and Sarah. She's heard the stories about this God. And she, and she, and she says, I'm a, God, you are El Roy. El Roy. Or maybe a little bit longer I sound. El Roy. Kind of hard to say in English. And an and, and interpretation of this could be, it could be, you are the God who sees. El is always God, right? Ezekiel means something about El, about God. Daniel, okay? So when that El's on a name, it has something to do with God. God and Rai is, is this idea of, of seeing. You are the God who sees, or you are the God of my seeing, or it could be you are the God who sees me. You are El Rai. And the NIV has chosen the translation, you are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. And she lived. Think about that. You know, the Bible says no one will see God. Nobody can see God and live. Yet she says, I've seen God and I'm still alive. And I'm going to call you, you, you are Elroy. You are the God who sees me. And she gives him that name. She is the only person in the Bible who gives a name to God and lives to tell about it. And she knows she has seen God, although she has not seen his glory, but she has seen this angel who is God. And that is why the well to this day is called Beir Laha Royal. And it is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son. And you know this, Abram gives the name Ishmael. Ishmael means God hears. See the E-L on the end of it? God something. Shema means to hear. God hears. And the name of this boy when he was born was God hears. And every time they pronounced his name, it was God hears. God hears. God hears. God heard. God heard Abraham and Sarah. God heard Hagar. God came and met Hagar. And she bore this son to Abram. And you notice it says, Abram was 86 years old. This is not, this is not when people are living to be five, 600 years old. He does live well past 100, but he is an old man here. Excuse me, I, I got to be careful. You know, it's all relative. It's all relative. It's all relative. He is well advanced in years. Okay? That is, uh, I'm on, uh, never mind. I'm out of that one. Sorry about that. Uh, it's, it's all relative. 62 used to seem really old until this month. Okay. <laughs> and he bore him Ishmael. Ishmael. God hears. God sees. God, you, you saw me. You saw me. And, and you responded. And you know, she goes back. She go, this, this, this is, Hagar is a faithful and obedient woman. She goes back. She does what he says. And she puts up probably with more abuse. And she goes home, back to Abram and Sarah. And she tells Abram the story. And Abram believes her. And Abram names the child 
Ishmael. And I want to suggest to you that this boy is Abram's boy. He loves this boy. You know, we're so used to the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I don't want you to forget, this is Abram's son. As much as Isaac was his son. Just as much as Isaac was his son, Ishmael is his son. He may have looked at Ishmael's face and saw his face. Maybe he saw his grandfather's face. I've got a picture in my house of my grandfather, Arizaria Shamaria. Back when I had hair and a mustache, people come in and go, that was one of those pictures that was you know, made to look old of me. It's my grandfather. This was his son. He loved him. And in fact, his heart probably leapt for joy when she bore a son and thought, finally, God has answered, this is the boy. This is the one that's going to bring blessing to the world. This is my son. Well, turn over a couple of chapters. In chapter 21, we have the birth of Yitzhak, of Isaac. And when God had told Abram and Sarah that they were going to have a child, another child, you know, Abram's plea was, God, Ishmael, why can't he stand before you? What's wrong with Ishmael? I have a son. I already have a son. And God says, no, uh, he's, not, he's, not, he's not the one. He's not the one. He will be a great man. He will have a great people. I have a plan for him, but he's not the one. And Isaac is born. And in verse 8, when Isaac, the child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. He was mocking. He's a young teenager. He's, he's heir to the throne. He's the boy. He's the firstborn son. He is every bit as much of Abraham's son as this new baby is Abraham's son. We read in Galatians chapter 4 that Yes, and, and Paul says he was mistreating Itzhak, Isaac. Uh, some read into it, molesting and so on. I, I, don't, I think most of the Hebrew scholars don't go that way with it. But he was doing something. He was mocking. He was making fun. He was jealous. He was maybe making light of this huge celebration about this new heir to the throne when he, he is the heir to the throne, if you will. And he is mocking. And Sarah sees this. And when Sarah sees this, when Sarah sees this, she says to Abraham, verse 10, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. Now I want to ask you, do you think Hagar's life has been easy these last months? There has been no change in attitude. And this time Hagar says, Abraham, get rid of him. I want him out of here now. I want her out of here now. And you know what, Abraham... This is his boy. Come on now, fathers. This is his boy as much as the new boy. He loves this boy. Listen, in two chapters, 21 and 22, Abraham is going to be called upon by God to get rid of two boys. You know that? In this chapter, he has to get rid of this boy whom he loves, his firstborn and in chapter 22, he's asked to sacrifice the next boy. Man, you talk about price. Get rid of him. And the matter distressed Abraham greatly because he, it concerned his son. But God says to Abram, 
Abram, don't be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you because it is through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. I will take care of this boy. I will make of him a great nation. Verse 14, just like he does in chapter 22. He must have heard this at night in a vision, just like he does with Isaac. He gets up in the morning and he took some food. Now think of this. This man, has a, this is a wealthy man. He's got a lot of stuff. He's one of the best known men in the old world probably at this point. And he takes some food. He takes a skin of water. And, and the English here kind of slips up. It kind of misses this here a little bit because it's a really awkward translation. The Hebrew literally says he takes the food, he takes the water, and he takes the boy and he puts them on her shoulder and sends him away. Well, the boy is a teenager. And so the best Hebrew scholars sort this out and say, he takes the food, he takes the water, puts it on her, and he also takes the son and gives him to her. He is giving up this son. He's giving him up. He's giving up his firstborn. And he says, Hagar, take him and leave. I want to tell you, friends, come on, this dad's grandpa's here. His heart's got to be breaking. This is the hardest thing he has been ever asked to do. This is the hardest thing a man, he could be asked to do. Get, he's gone. He's out of your life. You may not see him again. He'll probably go back to Egypt. He'll go south. He'll go somewhere. And he's going with bread and water. How is he going to survive? She has nothing. She has nothing. How is he going to survive? What's going to happen? And off they go. Off they go. He sent them on her shoulders and, they, and off with the boy. And she went on her way and she wandered in the desert of Beersheba. Listen, friends, this is desert area. This is not prime property. She's in the desert area of Beersheba. She's wandering. The water goes, is gone, verse 15. And she put the boy under one of the bushes. And she went off and she sat down nearby about a bow shot away because she thought, I'm not, I can't watch this young teenage boy die. And she sat there nearby and she began to sob. Her son is going to die. She has been kicked out. She, all because of someone concocted a plan for her that she, she obeyed. God came to her and she said, God, you're El Roy, El Roy, you see me. You see me. You gave me a son that says you heard me. And now he's dying. I have nothing. I mean, I don't even want, I don't even want to, I can't stand this anymore. I don't even want to hear him cry anymore. And she begins to sob because she can't stand it. And verse 17, listen, friends, we have such a great God. He knew what was going on. But don't you love this? Come on. God heard the boy crying. God hears you. God sees you. And God hears you. There is nothing in your life, my friends, that is not important to God. You, you, you might think, well, you know, my issues are not very important compared to what this person's going through. And this person's thinking, wow, I'm going through a lot, but what about this? It, you know what? It's all relative. Just like a parent, you care about your children. God cares. He sees and he hears his own. Yes, the Egyptians. Yes, the Egyptians. And he, and he heard her. And the angel of God 
calls to her once again, and she knows his voice, and he calls from heaven this time. What's the matter, Hagar? Don't be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up. Take him by the hand, for I will make him a great nation. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water, gave the boy a drink, and God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert. He became an archer. And while he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother went home and got a wife for him from Egypt. And Hagar disappears off the pages of our story. And the Ishmaelites become a great people. Listen, I love this story because it reminds us God sees and God hears. And this is the principle, friends. This is not just an Old Testament principle. In closing, I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is not just an Old Testament principle. This is a principle for you and for me. This is one of those inner dispensational principles that applies because of the God that we love and the God whom we serve. Last week, Brother Bruce Kemper, at our 50th anniversary, referred to this passage in 2 Timothy, talking about how, how quickly we can lose our focus and how we're just one generation away from losing focus of what God has called us to stand for. And this is the Apostle Paul. This is, this is Paul, the great apostle, who has suffered more than any of the apostles, been beaten, been stoned, been imprisoned illegally for years, hungry, you name it. And he comes to the end of his life. This is his, this is his last will and testament. He comes to the end of his life. He comes to the end of his life. This man who had planted churches all over the Greco-Roman world. This man who had trained leaders and elders. This man who had given his life for the ministry. In verse 16, he writes to Timothy, At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. You mean to tell me there wasn't one Christian in the whole city of Rome that would risk his life and go up and stand next to Paul and say, I want to give a character reference for this man. You're not telling the truth. Not one, not one person would dare stand with Paul. He was completely on his own, without a friend in the world, literally, when he stood before Nero, the emperor, and was falsely accused and knows he is facing his death. But look what he says here, verse 17. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it and I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Not one person would stand with me, Timothy, but I wasn't alone. I want you to know, in my moment of challenge, maybe it was a moment where, maybe, who, you know, Paul was a man. Maybe, maybe he had had it. Maybe he was just going to keep his mouth shut and just, I don't know. But he says, not one person would stand with me, but all of a sudden I realized the Lord was standing right next to me and gave me the strength to go through this. Now, all, all this, friends, 
the name of God given by this Egyptian insignificant slave woman, you are El Roy. You are El Roy. You are the God who sees. And I just want to remind you today, friends, God sees. God sees. And not only will God see, but God knows how to take care of what belongs to him. And he will do it. Amen? Amen. He is a good God. And whatever is in your life right now, whatever God has brought into your life, whatever challenges have come into your life, I want you to remember, with Hagar and with Paul, the Lord is there. And he sees and he hears and he will take care of you. You are El Roy, the God who sees me. Let's close our service and sing our final hymn before we go home today. The Bible says, we love him, more love to thee. We love him because he first, he, first, he chose to love us. And God has chosen to love you, friends. And if you're here today and you do not know Christ as your Savior, he has chosen to love you. He died on the cross to pay for your sins, and he offers you forgiveness for sins and eternal life if you will receive him and receive his payment for your sin. I would love to talk with you more about that. Pastor Kevin is up here today. You can talk with Pastor Kevin. We would love to talk with you because we want you to share that love of Jesus Christ. It was good news uh, today to hear about Kenneth Bay being freed from North Korea. And uh, a lot of people taking credit for it, even Dennis Rodman. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, you know, one of his family members, I think it was his sister, said... The Lord never forgot about him. The Lord never forgot about him. And we leave here today, friends, and I just want you to know that God will never forget, and God will take you through. He is the God who sees. Father, we thank you. I thank you, Lord, for loving me. You, I don't deserve your love, but you chose to love me. You've been so good to me, to my family, to my wife and kids and grandkids. Uh, and Lord, you are such a good God. You've been good to this church as we celebrated last week. Uh, you are such a good God. And we just, we just pause today as we leave this place with the challenges that are going on in our lives, with the things that we will face when we walk out these doors. Uh, we just want to thank you. And we want to tell you we, we love you. We do love you. Even when we don't show it, we, we love you. And Father, we are thankful that our children and young people, whom we love dearly, uh, you know how to take care of them, and you will care for them too. And we just love you today. And we thank you that you are God who sees and who hears. In Christ our Savior's name we pray these things.